This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, well, welcome to the second installment of the Fall 2015 UC Santa Barbara Distinguished Speaker Series. Uh, we're very proud to uh, announce that we have almost 25 million views of our, of our speaker series, so it's uh, getting wide recognition, which we're um, quite proud of. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. And we have a fantastic guest with us tonight, Mark Suster. Mark is a friend, and Mark is a force of nature, literally. Mark came into the Southern California market in 2007, didn't have a huge network. He had a good network, but he didn't have a huge network in Southern California. And in a very short order, Mark created um, massive awareness of what he was doing with his venture firm. He started uh, blogging, uh, and his blog went from really ground zero to becoming one of the most widely read startup entrepreneurial blogs on the planet. I don't think I've seen a list in the last five years that didn't list the top startup blogs that Mark's wasn't right there at the top. So it's, so it's done quite well in the number of readers, but it's also, I think more importantly, done well in the fact that it's so well respected in the startup community. It's one thing to have a lot of people clicking on your articles. It's another thing to have the leading minds in the startup world commenting on your blog and sharing your blog with others. So Mark is a prolific blogger. He's also um, created um, a number of web s uh, series and TV shows uh, this week in, v in Venture Capital, and now he has um, Both Sides um, TV. Highly recommend that you check out his blog, Both Sides of the Table. Uh, Mark is an operator turned venture capitalist. So he's been on the operator side of the table, and now he's on the investor side of the table. He is a partner at Upfront Ventures. Before he joined Upfront, uh, in, when he came here in 2007 and started creating um, that national presence that he has today, he was the vice president of product management at Salesforce. Salesforce had purchased his company, where, which he had founded, and he was a CEO, uh, Coral, which which he built um, into a substantial business. Salesforce absorbed that, Salesforce absorbed that business um, and then brought him in as a vice president. Before that, Mark's a serial entrepreneur. Before that, he had founded another company where he was also the CEO. That was a European-based software-as-a-service company um, called Build Online, and that was also acquired. Um, that particular company was acquired by uh, Sword Group. So I often get asked, how do I become a venture capitalist, John? How do I become an investor? Well, there's many, many paths to it. Um, the path I like the most is the one that Mark took. The folks that opened the door uh, for him to become an investor were the, the folks that he made money for over an eight-year period. So both of those companies that I just described were funded by the upfront partners. So when Mark looked up and said, maybe I want to explore this investing game, they, um, they welcomed him in because they knew him well. They knew that uh, he was a sound entrepreneur, and they knew that he could come in and, and really build um, their business. So Mark loves passionate entrepreneurs. We're going to talk with him about some of the specifics that he looks for. Um, and he often invests in very early stage and in people that aren't necessarily proven. That is a very difficult place to invest because you have so many unknowns. Now, obviously, the upside is, can be tremendous when you're investing super early in, some, in an area that's new. But when you're investing in someone that maybe doesn't have a huge track record and, you're invest and they're trying to do something that hasn't been done before, that's fraught with risk. Mark is not one to shy away from risk. So he, whenever you go after um, venture capital money or any investor money, make sure you know what the venture capitalist or the investor wants to invest in. 
everyone has a specialty. The days of, of investors investing across the board in a variety of different um, industries are pretty much over. They've been over for, for quite a while. Mark's interests include a digital content and distribution, ad tech, consumer internet, and of course, software as a service, which he knows well um, as his days as an operator. Mark earned his undergraduate degree in economics from UC San Diego, and he went on to get his master's degree at the University of Chicago. We can ask him about his MBA. We'll see if, um, how helpful that might have been um, to his startups. And he also spent 10 years at Accenture, which is a global um, consulting firm, and he took advantage of the fact that it was global by working in Asia and in Europe as well as uh, here in North America. And you guys know that I try to bring in people that are successful in business and in their personal life Mark absolutely is that to a T. I know his wife, Tanya. He's got two wonderful boys. He's, he, he does an incredible job of, of balancing an extremely demanding work schedule um, at, on a level that even hard for me to comprehend uh, while maintaining a very strong and supportive family life. More than once, I've had a call with Mark on a weekend um, at halftime of the soccer game where he's cheering on his sons and then we're talking um, about an issue and then we get right off the phone and he goes back to doing what he needs to do with his family. So that is not easy. He makes it look easy, but it's not easy. And lastly, Mark is an absolute mensch. Mark is the kind of guy that will do for others without asking for anything in return, and he's done it over and over and over. I think that's one of the secrets to, to his success. I think it's one of the reasons why he's made such an impact so quickly um, in the investing world. I know I've benefited from it personally. Uh, let's give him a warm UCSB welcome. <laughs> Take that back about work-life balance. He's doing email. No, I had to Snapchat you guys, so I'm just going to add you to my story here. Right, uh, M, it should be M. Suster. It's M. Suster on just about everything. Let me see. I don't know. I can't figure out these Snapchatty things. It's like a secret world for young people designed to confuse us. I'm pretty sure it's M. Suster. Yeah, I'm getting on that MySpace. Thing. Yeah. 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 Can you friend me on that? I would I appreciate it. You could be my first one. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, Mark, I um, got a bunch of questions I want to ask you, but I want to start with. I mean, you are very well known. Um, I think if Mark said no to, uh, I think nine out of ten opportunities to speak, he would still be speaking about 285 days a year. And so, we really do appreciate you, you taking the time to come okay. here. Um, so people see you up on stage, they don't know you, they, it's, it's not unusual for people in the audience, either here or watching this, to think, well, there must have been something that he had that I don't have. Like, maybe he had a rich parent or a rich uncle or, you know, he's got some Ivy League credential or there's a reason that he's up on that stage. And there are reasons, but I don't think they're necessarily unfair advantages. So I know that you're, you come from immigrant family, uh, an immigrant family, I come from fairly humble beginnings. Your mom was quite the entrepreneur. Just tell us a little bit about how she encouraged you to be an entrepreneur, and when did you start to think, hey, maybe I, maybe I will be that person that goes out and creates a company or two? Uh, thank you for the wonderful intro. Thank you for all of you guys uh, for the warm welcome. <clears throat> um, to 
answer the topic, I would say, first of all, by background, my father's from South America. He's from Colombia. And uh, he grew up in a small village called Medellin. Uh, he, to this day, still mostly speaks Spanish. Mm. Uh, I'd say 85% of the time he speaks Spanish. Uh, he has a strong preference for it. Um, so he grew up there. He studied medicine, uh, went to medical school in Colombia, and came to the United States for his residency in Philadelphia. Uh, did his residency at Hahnemann, taught at Hahnemann, and that's why I was born in Philadelphia, and that's mm -hmm. why Eagles. I've had a lifetime of suffering <laughs> with the Philadelphia Eagles. <clears throat> um, and nothing in his life would have led him to be the father of someone who chose to be an entrepreneur. It's just not in his DNA. He wasn't born that way. And I, I've been asked this before, but I have a belief, and it's a subjective belief, that entrepreneurs are born more than made. Yep. <clears throat> um, that there's a certain set of tendencies towards taking risks, dealing with ambiguity, uh, being inspirational with other people to get other people to join your cause and taking risks that are generally irrational. Yep. And those are things that are pretty hard to teach. And it's not like everyone was born to be an entrepreneur. And I don't even think it's the greatest cause that everyone should feel like they one day need to be a CEO right. yep. or a startup founder. Uh, but my mom naturally was. And she wasn't that successful at it, to be honest with you. Uh, she's what were some a of the successful she person. Um, well, <clears throat> she was a nurse, so she didn't go to a four-year college education. My father went to school elsewhere. So amongst the other things that happen in the latchkey generation <laughs> uh, is they gave us no guidance at all, where to go to school, what to study, what to do with work. No one ever said anything. Right. But my mom started a bakery. Um, and she opened a bakery in Sacramento called Sweet Dreams. And then she opened a second location. And then she started doing catering out of that. It's before there was Starbucks and the coffee generation. But, you know, one of their specialties was coffee mm -hmm. from Colombia. Uh, imagine that. Yeah, imagine that. That's all they serve from Colombia, though, I promise. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, otherwise, she would have been very successful. <laughs> It was real sugar in the coffee. <laughs> and uh, then she opened a restaurant. Uh. And the restaurant was kind of the downfall. Uh, I think she had this broad-based belief that she was good at bakeries. Therefore, she would be good at restaurants. And restaurants turn out to yeah. be very different. Yeah, different world. Yeah, and that was not very successful. Um, How it, old were you at that time? I think she started the bakery when I was 12 or 13, okay. and she started the restaurant when I was maybe 16 or 17, and by the time I was 20, my parents went bankrupt and got divorced. See, that's, that's what I find amazing, that oftentimes you'll see someone as a child seeing that play out. They don't want to follow that. Maybe it's inside them. I don't want to open a restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Well, you... <laughs> I was going to pitch you. Come on, man. <laughs> Um, no, but then you did, uh, maybe we can talk a, a minute about your consulting. Your, yeah. your, do you think that's what drove you to go the safer consulting route for a while? No. No? Um, so, again, because of the idea that I think entrepreneurs are generally born, not made. Yep. And not to overplay this and over-glamorize my life, but um, 
in high school, I started a t-shirt business. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why. I mean, I was on the high school basketball team. Uh, again, this lack of parental oversight to say to a 5'9", maybe <laughs> on a strong... I, I like to say I'm Jewish 5'10". Um, on a strong day, I'm 5'10". Uh, why didn't they guide me towards another sport than basketball? <laughs> but I was decent as a point guard, and uh, they shut down one of the competing high schools in our area and started busing in kids, and then suddenly we had a, a team that was worthy of national championship, wow. but I wasn't a part of it. Right. And so I joined the cheering section, and there was a group called the River Rats, and I thought, well, we go to all these games and we get hammered and do what you do before high school basketball games. But there's like, you know, like no one's capturing this spirit. So I designed T-shirts with a river rat on it. And they were long sleeve because we were in Sacramento and it was winter. And I wrote D some B's down the sleeve, which stood for drink some beers. But for parents, it was dunk some balls. And... Uh, <clears throat> We had this rat because it was the river rats. And, okay, this will sound terrible, but I was in high school, so it was number 69. Uh, and, I don't uh, understand that. <laughs> the mind of a high schooler. And, uh, and I wrote a little thing on the shorts, which was my, like, Slim Shady. It was Jake. I ended up naming my son Jake. Oh. Um, Does he have the shorts? <laughs> as it happens, I named him Jacob, which was my grandfather's name. And in Judaism, you tend to name people after a deceased relative. So I named him Jacob, and my wife ended up calling him Jake, which ends up being the world's biggest coincidence, because that was my Slim Shady. But, um, <laughs> and I started selling him. And I sold him at not much above cost. I made maybe like 20% margin, 25% margin on the shirt. But I did nicknames on the back, and I charged a huge uh, amount per letter for your so. nickname. And I made all the profit in the letters. Right. And I started by wearing the T-shirt to a game with my nickname, which was Dr. Seuss. So I had Dr. Seuss on the back of my shirt. And then everyone said, well, how do I get one of the shirts? How do I get my name on it? So I made hundreds of dollars in high school doing that. I did it for three years. I handed it down to a guy when nice. I left who then took over the business. And then he did it for one year, and it got outlawed on campus. Uh -huh. And then no one was allowed to do it anymore. Um, so I did that. I also... This is a true story. I'm not saying that you should aspire to this or it's an envious story, but it's the truth, is I also started a mobile keg business. And uh, I had a friend who had a truck. You know, the problem in high school at the time was uh, there just wasn't enough availability of parents going on vacation who wanted to lend their house to keg parties. <laughs> and we had a lot of golf course, uh, courses in Sacramento. So... Um, so I had a friend with a van, and we would take the van and buy kegs and put them in the back. And the real decision for us was, did we get two kegs or did we get three kegs? Mm. And did we charge $2 or did we charge $3? And I'll always remember this scene. We had a party. This time it was actually at a house, and we went the two-keg route. And the biggest guy in my high school, I can't remember his last name. I remember his first name was Jeff. Like this big, burly dude's coming out, and he's like, if I find that Suster kid, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> Every other keg party was three. Um, and, uh, but honestly, I don't know what possessed me to do it. I right. didn't need to do it. My parents, I wasn't poor. Like, my dad was yeah. a doctor. I wasn't rich. There's no rich kids in Sacramento. Like, we were, it's a very middle-class town. 
Um, people say I went to the rich kids high school, but like there was no like, rich kids. It was poor. It was, sorry, it was middle class and poor. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's changed. I don't know. But back then, that's what it was. And I, I don't know why I did it. Like I didn't need the money. I just like yeah. wanted to do stuff. And then I started working in my mom's restaurant, and that was fun. But I was super interested in software. And so I started programming. And uh, I ended up having a mentor in school who got me a job in a software store called the Software Center. Uh-huh. Back then, you used to buy software in stores, guys. And, uh, and it came in packages. In and a box. you couldn't download it. Wow. The fastest modem, most modems were 28.8. Mm-hmm. You could maybe get a 56K modem if you had a bit of money. And so you had to buy packaged software. So I went and worked in the store, and they taught me how to write computer programs. And it was simple stuff. We were writing um, Lotus 123 macros. Yep. And there was a program called Norton. Uh, no, not Norton. It was, uh, I don't remember who manufactured it. It was called Clipper, which was a compiler. So we used to take these programs that we would write sitting on top of computer programs and compile them and then give out software and stuff. Oh, so, okay. like, I don't know. Why do you do like that. I don't know right. why I did it. Right. I really think there's no rhyme or reason. It's just like character. Well, that's when, when students ask me, you know, sometimes I think they want me and other people to anoint them an entrepreneur. That's ridiculous, right? So the conversation typically, I typically steer to, well, I don't know if you're an entrepreneur or not, but let's think about what did you do growing up? And I asked them a similar question I just asked you. Yeah. And if they struggle with finding those sort of anecdotes, then maybe that's, it's not necessarily the, you know, the be all end all, you're not an entrepreneur. But if you have no history of doing stuff like that, then maybe you're not, or maybe you're a late bloomer. But I, but I, I think it's I think entrepreneurship's like solving a puzzle, right? And it's so much fun because the piece you don't have a box, you don't know what the picture looks like, and you're having to kind of figure out what the puzzle pieces are as you go. I think about the letters on the back of the jersey. I've never heard that story, by the way. Yeah. It's a great story. I, I think the letters on the back of the jersey are are are, are the kind of thing that keep us going because now you're like, oh wow. Longer names, more money. I can, you know, maybe I can make different sizes. I can put a little thing on the shorts. You're just constantly finding fun ways to extend the business and make it more fun. Not, and the money's a byproduct. Like, yeah, sure, I get more money if I do those things, but you're not doing them because of the money. Uh, I'm going to go to that student question in a minute, so, so um, be ready. This may sound, um, we are friends, uh, but I do believe that you are absolutely a mensch. I talk about you Thank in you. my classes, For and sure. you're busier than hell, and you still help people. Sure. D- did that come from, was that somebody in your family, or do you feel like you were always sort of that bro that was doing that kind of thing? Or uh, do you think you consciously aspired to that, or was that just something that you, you were doing? Again, I'd love to be philosophical about everything, but I think it's just personality okay. type. I think uh, I was raised in a Jewish family. We were always taught to give back. I watched my mom, who became president of the UJA, the United Jewish Appeal. She was doing philanthropic efforts, um, sometimes for altruistic reasons, sometimes because she just wanted to be part of an organization yeah. that does yeah. stuff. I, that's my view of it. Um, you know, my, my family invited an Israeli family, and back then Israel was dirt poor, uh, to live with us. And so I had an Israeli family live with us for two years, and then the guy's brother came, then the uncle came. And like, wow. you know, series of people, like my mom just, we had an open house, whoever wanted to come, and she was like very giving and generous in that way. And I actually believe this, it's, it'll sound Pollyanna-ish to say, but 
I think you, I think for most people, you get more satisfaction from helping others and mm-hmm. giving to others than you do. Like, I, I'm really bad with getting gifts. I, I don't like taking things. I don't like getting things. Right, I don't like right. handouts. But it's ironic because I really enjoy the pleasure of buying something for someone thoughtful. Like, I'll, yep. I don't know, the Cowboys beat the Eagles this year. It pains me. But, um, <laughs> As a, as, a, as a side bet with my brother-in-law who's a Cowboys fan, I went and bought a ton of gear for his kids, like really fun Cowboys gear. Yep. I probably went a little bit further than I had to because I thought <laughs> how awesome it would be for his little kids to get all these Cowboy outfits, and that makes me happy. So sure, sure. not Pollyanna-ish, but it's just character. Yep. It's who you are. Yep. No, I remember one, one just sort of incident or insight into your, into your soul, into your giving soul. We had a uh, milestone at a company that Mark and I are working with together, and it was very early, and you know, in the scope of things, not the biggest milestone ever. But you brought a huge thing of champagne, right? Jeroboam. Yeah, and you said, "I," and I just, I wish I could remember exactly what you said, but it was very appropriate. You said, "I think we don't take, a, we don't stop and and celebrate milestones often enough in life, and we're gonna." celebrate this milestone and that just set the tone for this very small group we were at a restaurant it was wonderful right yeah, sure. it, it was like a it became a celebration it was it was, otherwise it was a business a, a business dinner right and it became a celebration so anyway i remember but, that but i do think that i think you know <clears throat> i was asked this question actually at uc san diego where i did go to school uh I was asked this question last week at the UCSD uh, some, uh, area, and they were saying, what lesson would you take away from it? And that was the lesson I tried to give people is, being an entrepreneur is so stressful, yep. and it's not glamorous, and it's not fun, and it's not nice, and it's mostly fighting and money problems and firing people and trying to figure out why your product sucks and yep. your customers won't Things buy. Things you and, and I talked about off camera right before this. Yes. About other people's companies. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and it's a hell of a lot of responsibility. And if I could just say this, and it's a slight diversion, but I want to come back to that, which is I always remember having, like, here's the problem. When you raise, the clock is ticking. Like, you raise money, and whether you raise nine months or 15 months or 18 months, you've mentally filed away at some point I'm. And I know that date is ticking, and I feel the progress of those dates going. No one else does because they, they have the luxury of not worrying about it. Yep. And then as you get down to like four months, and you're like, okay, I think term sheets are going to come in. I'm pretty sure people are going to bail me out. I'm pretty sure this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, everyone else is just like oblivious playing like, you know, yeah. World of Warcraft or whatever. And I'm secretly thinking, oh, right, you know, like, right. I literally, this is absolute truth, I, the thing that drove me the most in 2001 to survive when I was at my darkest moment was that I was getting married in 2002, mm. and I didn't want to be like the guy who, the like the parents are saying, you've married this putz who like right. is unemployed, right. and more than anything, that's what drove me. I'm like, I can't fail, I can't fail, I can't fail, yep. but, but you internalize all that stress. And I, I was speaking about this topic on a radio interview I did yesterday that'll be live next week about suicide. Mm. And I had a friend kill yep. himself over uh, the stress of his startup company. And I just couldn't believe that it would come to that. And I just wish he was around today to see that like there is a second act. Like yeah. Your company fails, you feel shame for a minute, and then you pick up the pieces and you move on to the next thing. And everyone's right. okay with that. Yep. And so anyway... I guess 
long, story, long answer to a short question, but I think on the journey, it is important to stop and say, I can't believe how much we've achieved. Yep. And I used to do it annually, and annually I would force us as a company to sit down and say, I know it feels like everything sucks and everything's a failure, which is kind of the conversation we had before stage, mm-hmm. but actually we've accomplished a lot this year when you yeah. look at it, right. even to our conversation. Yep. And we, do, we need to recognize that. Anyway, so yeah, sorry for... I agree. And I was always the guy that never wanted to take time for that. And so I'm so glad I worked with people that were like you. And they said, John, it's important. We need to do this. And it always was important. It just sometimes you get a little too focused on day-to-day tasks. First question. Uh, your path in your young adult life was one that many people these days seem to take. After you got your MBA, what inspired you to go off on your own with the startup? How did you fund this? And what was your key to success? So... I graduated UCSD on the five-year plan in 1991, but I got two majors, so I'll forgive myself. (laughs) And there was no such thing really as being an entrepreneur back then. Like, people didn't do that. And I was a software guy. I wanted to do software. Um, I met with a guy in San Diego who, you know, who was manufacturing circuit boards. I can't remember exactly for what, like video controller circuit boards. And I got to see a real entrepreneur from the inside. And by the way, also not glamorous. It was like a warehouse building and everyone wore jeans and it was grotty. And, and I had done an internship in college at First Interstate Bank. And I worked in their corporate finance group and we wore suits every day. We had suits. I had suspenders. I had, and it was Wall Street era, right? Like, you know, slick back hair. You should look at pictures oh of me. I'm a total wanker. But... Uh, <laughs> uh, but, like, that's, like, again, I, I have this, like, immigrant father, doctor, pediatrician role model. Like, I don't know what business is. I never heard of Goldman Sachs. I never heard of McKinsey. Right. But I was interested in computers. And my choices were go to work with this guy or go to work at Anderson Consulting, which became Accenture. And no one could get jobs back then. 91 was terrible. And uh, I got offered this job, paid $27,000 a year, which was a decent pay back then. And I was just so happy to have a job. None of my friends had jobs. Mm. And a good number of my friends in San Diego ended up joining, you know, they say necessity is the mother of all invention. They joined a bunch of startup companies because San Diego had these things called biotech companies. (laughs) And none of them had biotech backgrounds, but that's who was hiring. And they all made a ton of money doing it. But I went to Anderson Consulting not because I wanted to be risk averse or corporate. I went for two reasons. One is I was a computer programmer, and that was the place computer programmers went, that or Microsoft. And the second is I didn't know what else to do. You know, the only other people hiring were, like, banks and stuff. Like, uh, so the real problem for me maybe was I stayed too long. But what happened was the end of 1994... Having been, my specialty was internet technology, right? Like, it wasn't the internet. Oh, wow. It was distributed systems. So it was the era of what they call client-server computing, where we moved everything from mainframes or AS400s and distributed them onto PCs. And I would develop the software protocols for how those things communicated. So all my friends went at the end of 94 and did startups, all of them. They all went to little, small Silicon Valley companies. And again, this is pre-Netscape IPO. It wasn't like we're going to make our millions. It was just what you do. You went to software companies. And the main place everyone wanted to work back then was still Microsoft. Mm. And um, 
I had a different path, which is, I like to say, and I really felt that I chose life. Because I was able to finagle my way into getting transferred to France. Mm. And going to France meant that I wasn't going to go do startups. I knew that for sure. Right. Not in France. Not in France. Not, yeah. Ironic that the word entrepreneur is French. Yes. Um, <laughs> I work with a lot of French entrepreneurs, so I think I can say that. Um, <laughs> But I chose life, and I have zero regrets about that because you always feel like life is happening so fast, and yeah. I, need to, I need to go, go, go. I need to get on. I need to be Zuckerberg. I need to be like the wealthiest guy by the time I'm 27. But I didn't want that. I wanted to live in Europe, and I went and did it, and I went out for two years, and I moved back 11 years later. <laughs> and I lived in That's France. That's how it usually works. I lived in France. I lived in Italy. I lived in Spain, and I lived in Japan. And I started my first company while I was there, mm -hmm. you know, because life happens. Yep. And that's part of the reason I stayed longer. And so one of the biggest advices I've been given, advices, I don't think you can say that, <laughs> using my mices, um, one of the biggest pieces of advice that I've been given to people lately, I, had, I invested in a company that failed. And by failed, I mean we got a safe exit. We sold to someone. We got some stock, but the company didn't achieve. So I went to the founder. He had just gotten married, and he said he was thinking about traveling to Europe. And I said, go for a year. Go for a year. Mm -hmm. like, go really live it. Go really experience it. Because, I mean, not to sound like, like this terrible burden or anything, but once you have a family and kids yeah. and life and a mortgage and expenses and thinking about retirement... It's just so hard to go do that, and your youth is what that's for. It's for discovering life, and you only get one life, so you might as well discover it and live it. And, you know, we went for a year, mm -hmm. and he had a wonderful time, and he discovered a lot about himself and his new wife. And he came back, and a year later, like, the world, the, the, the hamster wheel's still spinning. Yeah. Like, life hasn't ended that he was gone for a year. So I have another friend who sold his company for $92 million dollars. Uh, he did okay, and he's just finished his earnout. Mm. He's just about to get married. Mm -hmm. They were going to take a six-week trip, and I said the same thing. I said, like, life's still going to be here when you get right. back. Like, right. go, go discover life. Anyway, uh, I don't remember what your question was. I think you, I think you answered it. I think you answer. I answer whatever questions I, I damn well please because <laughs> you're like a politician. I could be Bernie Sanders. No, uh, no. I think I, I, I'll you tell answer. just your question about how I got into it. I got into it all the wrong ways, um, and this happens to a lot of people. And I call these people entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I had a bunch of people at Anderson Consulting. We were all very technical. I almost joined pre-IPO a company called Akamai, which ended mm -hmm. up going for a big wild ride, and yep. I didn't do that. And we used to sit around like once a week and have beers and talk about all the ideas of startups we could create. And what entrepreneurs do is entrepreneurs, they say, you know what? I had an idea for a taxi sharing service. Totally, me I too. I had that idea like seven years before Uber was created, yep. you know? Yep. Like people do that all the time, really. And the only thing that separates entrepreneurs from entrepreneurs is entrepreneurs start. They do it. And so I was there at Anderson, and it helped that it was 99, and, it, and like it made it safer to do. And most people hate jumping alone, because then you have to tell everyone, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm doing this, and if you fail, it's very personal. So you grab one buddy on this side and one buddy on this side, and you say, let's jump together. 
That's called a three-person startup. You've given away two-thirds of your company and you haven't done a day's work and you're going to grind me because you think I'm taking 2% extra dilution when I fund you. But you gave away two-thirds to someone that you barely know. And I don't get it. I don't get why people do this. It's, I think, mostly a fear of failure why people do this. And I don't buy any of the arguments that people give me of why they should do it. Um, And so eventually I just got tired of those beer meetings. I got tired of Anderson Consulting. I went on stage, and I'm sorry, it's not your question, but I went on stage in front of everyone, our entire Strat consulting practice, and we were supposed to talk about this new initiative we had come to compete with McKinsey and their seven S's. And, you know, we have it? eight S's. Yeah, we, got the, we went to 11. Uh, and uh, I got up and I just said, you know, I've listened to everyone speak today, and you guys are all grim each other like everyone's smiling everyone's pretending we care about this but in the halls everyone's talking about how dumb this is like why are we doing this right like so once i did that i kind of had to go Um, (laughs) and uh i had more safety in jumping at that point and i just thought i'm just gonna do it and i had a friend from my mba program really the truth is like he he is a real entrepreneur more than i am and he had already done it. He quit. He was an architect, so it was maybe like easier. There wasn't a lot of architecture work for him in Ireland. And he kept egging me on to do this. And he said, well, what would it take for you to do it? And I said, much more than you would ever do. Like, I have to run something. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't join something. I have to run something. He says, okay, you're CEO. And he took away he my, last, bluff. my last <laughs> objection. And I said, all right, I'll do it. And I did it. And I took like 10 people with me. Ah. And then I fired them all a year later. <laughs> yes. But that's how I got started. And it was, it's, it's, uh, it's actually true. But that's a different story. So it's hard to think of questions that you haven't been asked. And I'm not yeah. going to profess that I've come yeah. up with any. And I don't think these next ones are those. But I do think they're applicable to this group and certainly a lot of folks watching. So you're a 20-something. You, Mark Suster, with all the knowledge you have today, yeah. are 20-something. Right? Yeah. Kind of like these <clears throat> folks here. Um, and you're trying to secure the attention of Mark Suster. Yeah. How do you do it? Well, first, let me say youth is wasted on the young. Yes. You know? Yes. Uh, how would I secure attention? It's hard for me to say. You know, I think it is that je ne sais quoi. You know, I don't know how to bottle that. Mm-hmm. But in part, it's how you get introduced. Right. So there's a young investor. I don't know how old he is. I don't ask these people, but he looks so young. He's late 20s, maybe 30, named Jonathan Triest Mm -hmm. out of Detroit. And uh, I just think the world of the guy. And he's really good at getting into early stage deals. And uh, I have my standard line for early stage investments investors, which is I know you guys have 25 deals you've done. I don't want to meet 25 companies. What's the one company mm, that yep. you think perfectly matches me? You know me. What's the one company that you think I'm best suited to invest in that's really going to resonate with me? You know my background, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I called Andrew, or not Andrew, I called um, Jonathan eight weeks ago, and I asked him that question, and he told me the name of a company. So the interesting thing is by the time I'm there, I'm kind of leaning in already because mm-hmm. I've been prepped. So who introduces you matters a great deal yep and i got there and again it sounds cliche but i always say i really want to back 
passion-driven entrepreneurs, that they are solving a problem that they just feel they innately need to solve. And so I get around, it's six guys. So, I mean, I guess the one criticism, which my partners have already pointed out, that there's zero diversity. It's six white guys. But it just is what it is. I funded plenty of diverse companies. No, it was a San Francisco-based company. Oh, okay. The investors and the earliest investors in Detroit. Okay, I'm just wondering. Yeah, yeah. He's also white. Uh, I have funded many diverse businesses. I don't. I know you have. I have. It's 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 just merely coincidence um, in this case. But anyway, so I go in there and there's these six guys, and they go through the whole history of their company and why they arrived at this problem and why this is the problem they're going to solve. And it's the unsexiest Mm. problem imaginable. Yep, I like unsexy. Unsexy. They do infrared people counting. Okay. Infrared people counting. Yep. That's it. Yep. They have a little device that sits on doors. The old, yeah, yeah. That's it. One product, one SKU. Now, as we got into a debate, there's tons of skews that they have in their mind and their development in their pipeline. Mm-hmm. So I always say I invest in lines, not dots. And I'll use that metaphor since none of you guys read my blog, but it is probably, it's okay, it's okay. Uh, it is probably the thing I'm best known for, which is my metaphor is y-axis, x-axis. X-axis is time. Y-axis is performance. So if I meet you on a given day, you either were really good at your presentation or not, you gave me a good demo or not, you've got a team that just had a big press release or not, but it really doesn't tell me anything about your character or your journey. Yep. The second time I meet you, you made progress. You hired two engineers, you raised half a million bucks, you got some good press, you signed a partnership with Google. So I see like the trajectory over time And then something really bad happens. Your co-founder quits, or Apple announces that they're shutting you down, or you got in a big argument with Steve Jobs, which actually happened to a friend of mine. Um, Public, public on video. Um, Because Steve Jobs told him his product was crap. And and the company eventually sold for several hundred million dollars for what it's worth to Yahoo, a place where companies go to die. Yes. And... uh, (laughs) You could write that down. Oh, wait, down. this is being filmed. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Yahoo. Sorry, Marissa. Foiled again. Uh, so uh, what was the question again? <laughs> no, so, so, um, so that's what I look for. I look for, like, do you have resiliency? Yep. Do you have tenacity? Do you not give up? Because I mostly say no to people. Yep. And I see 2,000-ish businesses a year, and I fund two to three a year, Yeah, personally. Like, as a fund, we maybe do 14 a year. And there are the people who find ways to keep getting on your radar screen again and again and again in the most polite way, most thoughtful way, and they still have a smile on their face, and they still haven't raised their money, and they still have adversity, and they still just turn up. And you can see that narrative of the person you just want to go on that journey with. Yeah. So I don't know if it's fair to ask you about a specific entrepreneur, so uh-huh. beg off if, you, if you'd rather not go on the record. Mm-hmm. But, so you, I do know that you, you invest in all types of people, including a first, I think she was a first-time entrepreneur, Ubeam. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Is there something specific that, that's instructional to these folks here that she did or what sort of brought you to, because she's a 
first-time entrepreneur trying to do something that's really never been done before at scale. That nobody believes can be that done. That nobody believes is going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Which is wonderful because it means it's probably going to be extremely successful. Yeah. How did, how, what was her, what were your interactions like? Here's is the it, weirdest thing. Her name is Meredith Perry. She's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, she came up with the idea while she was in college. It, maybe I should have been. Maybe it's just, wireless electricity. Okay. Wireless electricity. I don't mind. I mean, all this is fair game. Uh, and she won the pitch competition at University of Pennsylvania for developing a way to do wireless electricity. And the way that she purports to do it is using ultrasound. So you take energy as an input. You use a process called transduction, which converts it to a sound wave using piezo-ceramic material. And then you form a sound wave that travels through the air, hits uh, piezo-ceramic material on your device, and converts it back using transduction back into electricity. Mm -hmm. The properties of sound uh, follow the laws of physics. So you can't change the laws of physics. You lose about 50% efficacy for every meter. So by two meters, you've lost 75% efficacy. Right. So the people who are commenting about you beam point out that you say you can do four meters, but you, your loss ratio is so high that it would take too much electricity to power the device. Yep. Well, from a physics perspective, I've gone through all of the math to the extent I can and hired experts to the extent I couldn't. And I believe she's got a novel way of doing it that doesn't defy the laws of physics. Yep, yep. Uh, and so she went on to raise, I think, about $2 million before I met her. And she raised it from Mark Cuban, okay. Marissa Mayer, yep. who's a good person. <laughs> uh, Running a great company. Yeah. That, not so much. <laughs> uh, she raised it from... Who else was in that round? Mark Andreessen. Okay. Tony Shea. I mean, like some yeah. of the. So best I didn't realize she had high profile oh, yeah. going into it. Oh, okay. yeah. And then she hit a roadblock. Like, she struggled to raise a bigger round because mm -hmm. she was doing something that a lot of people were saying this is going to be hard and expensive and it's kind of sciencey and can't we just fund photo apps? Right. Right. <laughs> and. <clears throat> You know, it's the weirdest thing that I can't describe. Like I said, entrepreneurs are, are born like, I don't know, from like the second or third meeting, she started calling me Suster. Oh, really? Like this 25-year-old, you know, right. impertinent young right. lady. Right, right. You know, I, I had happened to have been fortunate enough to have lunch with Rupert Murdoch. And I told her that I was having lunch with Rupert Murdoch, and I was saying, you know, maybe there's some angle. And she's like, oh, say hello to Rupee for me. Suster. Yeah. <laughs> no, but then I turn around, and she's with Hillary Clinton, and oh, then wow. she's having breakfast with Rahm Emanuel, and then next time I see her, she's with Bill Clinton, and then she's with... Wow. She's just like magic, and it would drive the engineers nuts, because they're like, why do... Like, why does everyone pay so much attention to Meredith Perry and I got a PhD from MIT and I'm chopped liver? Yeah. She, she really knows how to get access to people, how to talk their language, how to sell a big vision, but then internally drive mm -hmm. innovation. Mm -hmm. What you can tell to answer the question about like the previous company that I talked to is you can tell a lot about an individual based on who they surround themselves with yep. and who they hire. We've now hired the head of global supply chain from Cisco. 
And before that, he headed global supply chain for Nokia. Wow. And before that, Palm. Yep. Or I think it was Palm, then Nokia. But like this guy already retired. He came out of retirement to join the company full-time. That's how excited he is about mm-hmm. the idea. Mm-hmm. And she just has a way of surrounding herself with people. She sets really big goals, and then she methodically gets at achieving them. And she doesn't listen to the doubters. And the way I view it as a venture capitalist is, is if I'm wrong, and I may be wrong, but if I'm wrong, I lose one time my money. Yep. One time. If I'm right, I'm going to make a thousand, two thousand times. I'm going to make so much money on this deal if I'm right. And uh, that's the properties of venture capital. That's why I want to fund big, ambitious ideas that could work plausibly. Mm-hmm. Yep. And some of them aren't going to work. I think this one will. That's why I bet on it. But some won't. And I feel like our industry has gotten too used to funding small ideas because the last six years, there's been really fast turnarounds. Like you fund Oculus, yeah. and they're bought for $2 billion and you make a ton of money. You fund yeah. Instagram, it's yeah. bought for a billion dollars. You, you know, And that's not saying those aren't great companies, but I'm just saying like the shortened cycles of returns, I think, have gotten our industry into focus on shorter-term returns. And I'm okay to fail. Like I, I think that's why ex-entrepreneurs actually do make good VCs is... I worked with many non-entrepreneur VCs, and I'd watch them, and they're like, yeah, I gave those guys half a million, but I'm not going to put it on my website yet. I'm like, why not? Well, I don't know if it's going to work. I'm like, that's why it should be on your website. Like, Go tell people you're taking that risk and help that entrepreneur increase the probability of success. But they're like, eh. So anyway, what was the question? No, I totally agree. And you guys are are in Appeal, which is a UCSB startup, and a big potentially big vision. Mm-hmm. And as you were talking about U-Beam, we have another success out of, uh, out of this program, actually, Inogen, which was an oxygen concentrator. And, and ha- um, Ali was actually told over and over by the world's leading experts, you can't, con- physics, you can't concentrate oxygen in the ambient air with a small device. Right. And she goes, really? And then she did it and changed the industry. So oftentimes when somebody tells you you can't do something, that's a good thing. Prove them wrong. We'll take the next. Discussion. Why didn't you send me that deal? I forget. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't doing VC then. <laughs> oh, I wasn't. Okay. All right. Um, entrepreneurs often work 12 plus hour days and nights. Being married and having two sons yourself, what advice would you give entrepreneurs regarding balancing work and family life? Start young. Start before you have to do all that balancing. Um. You know, I I like to use a sports metaphor. Um, Basketball. If you can be on the field and you can hit three-point shots, you want to be on the field. Yeah. And when time is running out, not everyone, but certain individuals, and time's running out, you want the ball. You want to be the person who has the three-point shot with two seconds. Yep. You make it. You get the glory. You miss. You accept failure. And it really takes a certain level of effort to be at the peak of your game. And I think the same is true of entrepreneurship. I don't know why we think it's normal for an athlete to work 16 hours a day for Kobe to wake up at 4.30 every morning to be that much better than everyone else. But entrepreneurship, I get to do as a part-time job. Like I start a company and it's just not that serious. And 
we're told to have balanced lives, but to reach the pinnacle of anything you do, I'm not sure you can. And that's just the truth. And if you do a decent business, not like trying to create the next uh, Facebook or whatever, not being Meredith Perry and trying to do wireless energy, uh, you can have balance in a normal business, and there's no shame in a normal business. But if you want to compete for billion-dollar markets where you're going to take food off the table of incumbents, where you're going to make regulators and local city officials hate you Mm -hmm. because you're offering a service that causes problems to constituents that donate them money. If you're going to do shit like that, you're all in. You're really all in. And so for me personally, I woke up one day and I just thought, I can't hit the three-pointers anymore. And I think I maybe could be a better coach. And that's how I really think about it. And you can be an entrepreneur at any age, and I'm not trying to talk people out of it. But if you want the honest advice for work-life balance, I would say start young and have no work-life balance. Yeah, and you're not, and it's always, you know, balance is a tricky word because you assume it's in balance. It's not necessarily always going to be in balance, but I think keeping the priorities straight, because I know you do keep your family as a priority. Yeah. During my entrepreneurial journey, I had no hobbies. I read no books. I mean, you know, it was my family and it was working and that's, that was appropriate. But I, I didn't sleep well. Yeah. I, I really had so much stress. I, I bared so much responsibility and you need to wake up every day, come into the office and we're going to conquer the world. And you're like, God, are we out of business in six weeks? Right. And there's cognitive dissonance in that. It's like the external reality of honey, when are you IPOing? I just read about you in the paper and I'm like, yeah, wait till, (laughs) wait till you see what you read next. Right. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and it's really stressful. And I didn't, uh, I wasn't healthy. Yeah. And I developed uh, what I thought was heart problems. I ended up going to the doctor. It's a very, wow. very, very common thing. Like, I tell entrepreneurs, if you think you have heart problems, go to see your doctor about acid reflux. Mm. Because it is a common side effect. I mean, you should do the stress test. Get on a, on a whatever treadmill and see if you really do have heart problems but right. so many times I told this story to entrepreneurs who say oh my god that happened to me too I didn't realize it was acid reflux but you build up all the stress and your internal uh, in, your body internalizes it but your brain can't right. you can't afford to yep. and so I just like years of a lot of stress really unhealthy unhealth- all the time like there's a guy who I may fund he's in his early 40s and he's got a business he's he's raised a lot of money and no one will give him any more and he made a little bit of money in his past and his business is like weeks from out of money and he's flying on an airplane anywhere in the world any moment in time to meet any investor that he thinks is a bona fide lead like i told him he's like you know mark i want to come to la i've already seen him a million times i'm like i don't think you should come yeah because until you get a co-investor, I can't lead you around alone. If you get a co-investor, come. He's like, no, I'm coming anyway. I said, okay, but I warned you that until you get a co-investor, he goes, I don't care. I know I need to be there. Mm. So he did. Jumped on a plane. He flew 12 hours to see me. Then he turned around and he caught the red eye the night after to arrive in London to work at a pop-up store in London that wow. he has. And he worked the entire day, spent Sunday away from his partner, and then flew home Sunday night to be with his partner and, and to be at work on Monday. And like insane level of commitment. And meanwhile, his world's falling apart. 
and yet he still believes that he's going to build a huge company. Mm -hmm. All his investors are giving him. And you know what he did? He wrote a $2 million check to the company himself. Mm. And he said, I don't care, I believe. And he just did it. And I'm like, you're crazy. You're crazy. But like, there are people who are just driven like that. And one day, if he's successful, he will point back to these stories of the supernatural things that he did. I don't have that in me anymore. I travel all over the world. I'm away a lot. But I just like, I used to fly at a moment's notice anywhere in the world to yep. be at important meetings. And there's a time where I just like, that's not important enough to me. Yep. So switching gears, um, Fred, Fred Wilson has said, Fred Wilson's another blog you guys should be reading if you're not AVC. Uh, Fred Wilson has said his- After you read Mark. After you read Mark. Yeah. He said his, his blog is his book. He doesn't have any plans of writing a book. Yeah. Do, what about you? Do you, I mean, I know not right, right now is not the right time for you to start writing a book, but do you think like a self, like, like what, a good question. what Brad has done where you saw- I have a book that I just started. I did not know that. I'm not, this is not a planted question. Nobody knows. Ah. I just met, I met with- uh, Breaking news, get it on Twitter. I met with an editor this week. Wonderful. Yeah. So I have the book I want to write, and I have the book I'm going to write. Uh-huh. The book I want to write is Appetite for Destruction. Does anyone know Appetite for Destruction? I do. Any, raise your hand. <laughs> God, that's Oh, don't so... be afraid. Come on, raise your hand. Oh, no, it's not Appetite for Destruction. I'm sorry. But if you don't know Appetite for Destruction, you certainly won't know. Yes. Use your illusion. Steal the song. Yeah. Use your illusion. Does anyone yeah. know Use Your Illusion? Yeah. One and Thank two. Thank you. One and Beers two. later. Uh, <laughs> it's Guns N' Roses. Yeah. And Guns N' Roses, after Appetite for Destruction, and shame on you for not knowing it, uh, produce a dual album, yep. Use Your Illusion, yep. Part Blue 1 and Part and 2. Red or something. Yeah, Part 1 and Part 2. At yeah. the same time, no one had ever done that, yeah. two albums. Right. So I had this idea, which I still want to do, which is two books at the same time. The first book is my journey of my startup. Like everything crazy that happened and everything crazy did happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, from people offering me money under the table to offering us to be part of a race car team to calling me and yelling me at night uh, because I didn't include them in a round to getting drunk with the CEO of Sony and Dell in a private wine cellar of Bernard Arnault in France uh, <laughs> where they served us like their private stock of champagne. And then the next month, no one would call me back because right. dot-coms went out of favor. Right. Uh, so, you know, I went, you know we, uh, we pulled a runner. We moved all of our stuff out of the office in the middle of the night because we wanted to get out of a lease. And we signed another lease in a really, like, run-down neighborhood. So I took the risk of having two leases at the same time. Uh, I had a guy die right in front of me on the first day I was going to start my start. But I had, like, just, like, crazy, crazy stuff happened through a period of time and I want to write that as a narrative mm -hmm. and not the lessons I learned because I think it'll ruin it but I want to write a compliment book that goes with it which is all the lessons I so learned like a compendium to use your yeah. one yeah so I went to uh, we used to get in a competition after we learned to be depression era babies of who <laughs> could stay in the cheapest hotel so I used to stay in Frankfurt in my posh days like 250 300 euros a night then, like, when I had to go on a diet, it was, like, 150 euros a night. And then I started, like, competing with my work colleagues on who could stay cheaper. So we started moving further and further out of Frankfurt. I stayed in a city called Neuisenberg, which is, like, 15, 20 minutes south of Frankfurt because it's cheaper. And I found a pizza parlor that had a 30 euro a night, like, room above a pizza parlor. Wow. And so we started staying there. And I used to go to Frankfurt, like, twice a, twice a month. And... Uh, 
And then they shut it down. And then I'm like, oh, God, what are we going to do? So I'm like, we'll go 20 euros. This is a true story. In the middle of January, my, my colleague Stuart Lander, you met Stuart yeah, before? Yeah. So Stuart Lander and I go there together. And of course, we fly Ryanair instead of BA. And if you book in advance, you could get nine euro flights. But it doesn't actually <laughs> land in Frankfurt. It lands like 50 minutes outside of Frankfurt. Uh, so we get there, and they didn't have showers in the room. Uh, no showers in the room. In the hall? Yeah, you had to go down the hall in the middle of winter outside. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, we've we've really pushed this too far. So we come out in the morning, and I have my towel wrapped around me, and I'm like walking naked with my towel wrapped around me. And all these Turkish construction guys are in their leopard print, like, you know, little super skimpy outfits walk into the shower, and I'm like, oh, here we go. But, like, there were just so many crazy stories about being a startup You can't stop it there. <laughs> nothing happened in the shower. <laughs> really, Tanya, nothing happened. No, but I just felt like I've really fallen far, you know, from private wine cellars of right. Bernard Arnault to Turkish construction workers in the middle of winter. With leopard prints. Showering together. <laughs> Martin, thanks so much. This was fantastic. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.